What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I am your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset, your behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. So here we are on episode 64 of the show. Last week, I was speaking with Andrew MacDonald, a UK commercial retail agent and broker who has over his career of 25 years or thereabouts seen the retail sector and in particular the high streets struggle. And I think this struggle has become all too visible to pretty much every one of us. If you're in, our, even though these guys are, are um, you know, UK based, you can see it here in Dublin. And we have House of Fraser, we have Debenhams here in Ireland as well as the UK. And I have seen those shops close down in the last couple of years. And also we've had, you know, Toys R Us and all these kind of large names that have been around for decades and, and if not longer and um, and suddenly they're gone. So my guest this week is a man on a mission to end that struggle with all these retail and high street stores. My guest is Alex Schlagman of SaveTheHighStreet.org. Now, Alex is very passionate about try to save the high street and he's built a movement around the idea and a lot of people have gotten behind this movement and I think it's a great idea Um, but I do think it's going to be a tough nut to crack and I know that uh, well I believe that myself based on just my own experience in retail and the fragmented ownership is just such a major challenge. I'll give you a quick example. I used to run a car park on Trinity Street in Dublin and coming up to Christmas we would always put um, we, we wanted to kind of decorate the street and we wanted to put the lights on the street they always put lights on Grafton Street and various streets in the area but they never did them on Trinity Street so we got the idea let's go and put you know Christmas lights up on the street and make the whole place kind of feel kind of very festive and sure enough we went out we sort of got a price to do it and we got all this kind of stuff and it was going to cost x thousand i can't remember the amount and we went and knocked on all of the retail units on the street and asked would they contribute so that we would basically divide the price between all of us on the street and most people were very enthusiastic and said oh yeah that's great it'll improve the image of the street and all that but then one buddy one person says no i'm not interested you guys go ahead and of course, he's going to benefit from it, but he's not going to be paying for it. And so somebody else notices that as well and goes, well, hold on. If he's not paying for it, why should I pay for it? And sure enough, three or four people drop out. So in the end, it was ourselves and a couple of other people that kind of stuck by the, the original kind of agreement. But there was at least four or five people that pulled out of it all together. And so they got a free ride. And that is the kind of thing that creates the problems that makes what Alex is trying to do so difficult. So anyway, unlike, say, for example, a shopping center and in in the case of a shopping center owner, they're looking for overall success of the shopping center. And for that to work, it means all of the units have to work in unison. Uh, Whereas when you're in fragmented ownership and you're on a street or something like that, It only matters to the person who owns the shop whether that shop in particular does well. They couldn't care less whether the next door neighbor is making money or not. So anyway, without further ado, my conversation with Mr. Alex Schlagman. Okay, Alex, welcome to the podcast. How are you keeping today? Yeah, always good. Thanks. Thanks, Gavin. Thanks for having me. Where whereabouts does this uh, podcast find you today? Where are you based? Uh, So at the moment, I'm in West London. Um, just slightly west of Notting Hill. Good man. Okay. Well, I just wanted to, I mean, obviously we have an audience here who may have come across you with some people who have not. Mm. Can you just summarize in a couple of sentences what it is you do? Who is Alex Schlagman? Yeah. So nice to meet you all. Anyone listening in, watching in. I'm one of the founding partners of SaveTheHighStreet.org, which is an industry-wide movement all around the transformation of high streets in the UK. So we're doing all kinds of stuff that relate to reinventing and reviving high streets. Our big thesis is that we need to change the high street to save the high street. 
Yeah, I think a lot of people will agree with that. Um, we're going to get into all of that, but just turning back the clock a little bit, um, I wanted to just ask you if you can give us a little bit of, you know, your early backstory for some context. I mean, if we go back to, say, either, you know, um, finishing university, what was your first job? And uh, just to kind of fill in some of the blanks for people. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so, I mean, at university, I set up my first tech business. I was involved in quite a few sort of entrepreneurial type things at university never really before that I sort of came into my own a little bit when I went to university and sort of almost discovered business in a way um, so I mean I was involved a little bit with the clubs um, uh, but then uh, spotted really it was a sort of problem I was facing myself which was that I didn't really want to buy the university books every year when I had all these other university books that I'd already sort of used and were never using again. Couldn't I sell them to my neighbors? And I suddenly thought it was all the era of eBay. You know, I don't really want to sort of put, list everything on eBay and sell it around the world. Surely there's people nearby that want to buy things from me. So we basically launched something called Big Banana, which was a bit like Gumtree for students um, and sort of rolled that out in Leeds and tested it as a rollout outside in the, in the north as well in Manchester. Uh, and so built a sort of tech business in a way. It was like a messaging board, I think Gumtree for students, really. And it started uh, started with this concept of university books, but actually much more popular were people listing, you know, old furniture they didn't want to take with them. People started listing jobs and uh, properties and all kinds of stuff. And we had local advertisers on the platform. Um, and then I got involved uh, at, sort of at the university time as well with a friend of mine who was um, wanted to start like a local media company, uh, originally just a magazine, but we turned it into a broader based media company helping brands connect with students on campus. Uh, so I sort of helped build that at the same time. It's called Skint. And there was, um, there was something I was involved in, which was uh, I was approached by a network marketing uh, guys around uh, uh, quite a sort of random proposition utilities um and uh i was uh, I, I stayed in leeds after my undergraduate uh, to to carry on and studied marketing because i had i had big banana and i had skin i had these business interests as well and um decided to sort of take on a partnership with this network marketing company to rebrand to, uh, their telecom services and sell it to football clubs particularly with, i was hoping to get into leeds united because i was up in leeds right. and sort of resell resell their telecom services to the fans and everybody would take a cut so I wasn't I wasn't really part of the network marketing scheme the same way it was more like a sort of strategic partnership and managed to get it sold into to Luton Town actually um for, it was for my dissertation for my marketing dissertation uh, my thesis in my uh, in my master's and so sort of rolled that out so I was quite involved in stuff when I was at university and then when I came back uh, to London after my master's I you know I look back and talk about this stuff but I didn't carry on with Big Banana even though it had traction I didn't feel like Skint was really mine because it was a sort of another person with the CEO and I was more sort of helping a friend run, run that uh, but I just decided to make a clean break closed it all down came to London I'd met um, I'd met a couple of guys who wanted to start a digital marketing agency for small businesses and so the three of us really kicked that off. Um, they had some funding already. I wasn't the CEO. It was a kind of very different experience to sort of later life stuff. Um, it was a startup. I was founding team. It was very exciting. It didn't feel like the same kind of pressures you feel later on when you're really at the helm of it all. Uh, but it was an exciting journey. And we sort of built out a, a, a digital marketing agency helping small businesses. Uh, we did a lot of stuff with SEO. That was the big play. It was like 2006, 2007, early days of SEO. But we were helping small local businesses in and around London build their first websites and come online. Um, and it was a really exciting journey. And we got it through to the, the exit to a, another ad agency. And um, and then I worked for people for, uh, for four or five years uh, in that space, technology consulting, helping big brands. I built a specialism in retail for a um, uh, one of the largest digital marketing technology consultancies and agencies in the world. And I was sort of a young guy on this management team. And I was sort of brought in to sort of help fix a bunch of cultural clashes that were going on at the time because they'd acquired a whole bunch of agencies and they, they thought that maybe I could sort of help fix it. And if I kind of look back, frankly, Gavin, I think I broke as much as I fixed in that period. <laughs> but, but, you know, I learned a lot and I met my co-founder, uh, who ended up uh, being one of the co-founders that became the business, uh, which is uh, which one of our trading brands is SaveTheHighStreet.org that I talked about earlier. 
Well, okay. So I would looking, just having listened to that, I would describe that as kind of like almost serial entrepreneur that you've, you've gone from business to business Mm. to business and things like that. But obviously you took a a break with some consulting and stuff. I mean, what motivated you to get involved in the trend, you know, the, your missions, you know, you state your mission as to transform and strengthen the high street. Like what's, what's motivating that? Yeah, I mean, there's a few things. I mean, I've, I've grown up in a whole family of sort of retail. My grandfather was butchers in North London. My family were in the rag trade, my mom's side, and my dad's, and my dad as well was in that space. So I've sort of grown up around it. My first job's in that space as well. So you work with family, but also even, even beyond, and then built my specialism around it. So I was always really interested. And then in 2013, um, a big report was brought out by the government, um, a lady called Mary Portas, and you might remember, something mm-hmm. in, uh, was commissioned to look at the sort of plan to save the high street. And it was, um, yeah, it was 28 points. Um, and I looked through it all, and I was so sort of close to this space here. And, you know, I was just like, oh my God, there's something really fundamentally missing from this. There was like, there was this whole thing around the internet and technology and innovation, but that wasn't in the 28 points. It was like, that was the problem that we needed to address. And then we needed to solve it in other ways. But that come from a completely different standpoint. I saw the technology as, as a connector for local communities, as a force of good and as an unstoppable force innovation is the one thing we cannot stop if we think we're fighting innovation for the high street the high street is doomed is the death of the high street and this was around that era where the media had coined this phrase the death of the high street and so there's a couple of things going on in my mind firstly i feel like sometimes when the media gets behind things like this it creates it creates um Uh, the opportunity for contrarian truths, where a lot of people feel something, that they're right about something, which is actually fundamentally incorrect. And I felt we were really on the cusp of something really big around this. The concept that high streets weren't going to exist. I mean, people had got onto this because product commoditized product retail was getting disrupted by Amazon and they'd extrapolated that out. The town centers suddenly weren't going to exist. I mean, that's a massive leap of faith. So I was like, I don't believe fundamentally that's going to happen. I also believe that it should not happen because high streets have a much broader role than just, you know, enabling businesses to sell to consumers. They're the places that people interact in the real world. It's a £337 billion property portfolio in the UK alone. You know, it's got, you know, a real fundamental role in powering the local economy. Like, this isn't going to let bend over and die. It's not going to just, this isn't going to happen easily. And a lot of people are going to want to get behind supporting a better high street, a future high street, a more digitally enabled high street, a better connected high street, a more dynamic high street, not the same high street, but a high street. So the real genesis, I think, of this uh, was that, you know, people really believed that this was the death of the high street and it was coming and we didn't. And we didn't believe it was a world we wanted to live into. And we believed it was uh, a mission that not just we could get behind and be inspired by the founding team I put together around this, but also we can get a lot of other people to support us. And even in the very early days, we were always very mission driven. Before SaveTheHighStreet.org launched, we were already doing stuff. We were already experimenting and iterating around different things that we could do to play a role. We were in a position to do SaveTheHighStreet.org and launch that in 2016 because of the work we'd done in 2014 and 2015. And even in those early days, before we had a movement, before I even knew what an industry movement was, and I can share a little bit about industry movements if that's useful, because we went on our own journey about learning how to start a, a movement dynamic and support the industry to drive things forward not just us Um, but even back then we were all about this we're all about the why not just the what and the how it sounds like it sounds like that report the 28 point report was like basically trying to hold back the ocean i mean (laughs) you know it's uh, like innovation is not going to be held back and it's not going to be you know, told, you know, that you can't, you, you know, you can't, you can't disrupt this industry. It's just going to go ahead and happen regardless. And um, uh, having said that, I mean, and I, and I buy into your mission, I think you're right. Um, but I, I've expl- experienced my own, you know, um, I invested in, in retail back in the early 2000s and the mid 2000s, and I did very well on it. And, and I, I just got in at the right time. 
and and made quite a bit of money on it and i go out sometimes i pass the 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 assets that i used to own i i went in i rented them i sold them i made lots of money on the sale and and i redeployed that capital elsewhere but i go past those shops that i sold and a lot of them are sitting empty today so there definitely is a problem there and um I mean, the past glory days of, of retail. I mean, what, where do you see the future for retail if we yeah. look ahead, you know? Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really tempting to get into all the stuff that we think we need to do around vacant units, but I'll come back to that because it's a bit specific. Let's talk a little bit about the future then, Gavin, if you want to start at that point there. So, you know, really high level here. You know, high streets need to become more intelligent, more collaborative and more dynamic. It's the kind of highest level. You know, intelligence means that every high street needs a plan, every business and operation within it needs a plan it needs to be the right mix of uses it needs to be dynamic in the sense that you know high streets need to change over time we need to have the ability uh, for use to change but we also need the ability for even you know individual units to change use from day to night you know and actually we need to be much more learning from the internet learning from stock markets, learning how does high streets meet the changing consumer needs, even on a weekly basis, let alone in real time, like, you know, bidding exchanges and stock markets and the like. Yeah, so we need much more dynamism, much more ability in the system to change things. And the third is collaboration. And the reality is, you know, we're all in this together. The success or failure of high streets impacts us all. And we've all got a role to play and we can all benefit from this in lots of ways. We can talk about the specifics of that, but actually we need to work better together. Businesses on high streets need to work together because they're working on an overarching product called their high street or their town center. Yeah, so they're actually working unified ways, you know, can actually benefit each one of them by drawing more footfall in and having the right offer. Yeah, landlords, tenants need to work better together. It's a partnership. It's not going to work well if not. Banks need to be involved in this. The lender, landlord, tenants and lenders need to be working well together. Public and private sector need to work well together. So at the highest level, we have these three core pillars. From my perspective, I see an awful lot of investors looking at retail empty units and thinking, okay, conversion to re- to residential. But I don't think that's appropriate in most cases. So why don't you go into the six? Yeah. That you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, the first one, so I'll touch a little bit about that. We're going to need a new generation of high street entrepreneurs to fill some of the gaps that are left by national chains disappearing from the high streets. We know what's happened. Everyone here listening in is going to know about Topshop and Debenhams and these, you know, big ticket storylines around high street failures. Uh, behind the scenes, there's a lot of retracting going on from the big national chains as well. They're doing targeted tactical CBAs to reduce their store footprints. It's leaving a lot of gaps. And those gaps are not going to get filled by like-for-like operations. BHS will not replace House of Fraser. Debenhams will not replace BHS. That's not happening. So we need to find new businesses, a new generation of businesses, and broadly about 14% of independents uh, grow on the high, uh, open on the high street every year and 14% disappear. So it usually keeps itself quite even, but we're really going to become more and more reliant on the independent sector in this next phase. So that's the first thing. So we need to identify and empower a new generation of startups that can plug the gaps and take advantage of the gaps in the market. Just because you don't have Carluccio's and Bello Italia on your high street now doesn't mean people around that catchment area don't want Italian food. So if you're an Italian restaurant entrepreneur, now's the best time ever to get into market. And I'll touch on some of the other reasons for that beyond just the obvious gap in the market, gap in demand and supply. Second thing I think is really important, I touched on it before, is that we need plans for high streets. Yeah, And not all high streets need to have as much retail as they did before. So we need to understand what is the right mix of uses in every single town centre and actually recognise that to save some high streets, we need to shrink them. We need to have other uses, particularly around the edges, whether there's conversion into residential or other commercial uses. And I see a lot of applications for other commercial uses beyond Class E, beyond High Street, which could be flexible office space in regional town centres and suburbs because people aren't commuting as much as before. And there's a topic we can talk and have talked at length about, uh, Gavin. You know, uh, a last mile logistics warehousing space, real need to get products in the hands of consumers locally. We need more space for that. You know, 
other commercial uses as well as residential around the town centre, bringing more consumer in with a smaller, more compact, well-organised, well-planned mix of businesses, more like what a shopping centre should be doing. You know, we need to treat every single high street, every single town centre the same way. And we need to keep it up to date. We need to have a dynamic data map of demand and supply so that we can evolve the uses within town centres on an ongoing basis. So I'm talking about plans, the next generation of plans for town centres, bottom-up, use-based plans that evolve over time. Third area I talk about, I'm not going to go into too much, is collaboration, because I've touched on that as one of the broader points. You know, a couple of other things that I think are going to be really, really important is we need to we need to really recognize that kind of innovation like you touched on is not going anywhere you know we need to embrace it and we need to embrace a, a generation of innovators that are going to support high streets of the future lots of people building technology and innovations for the businesses but also the wider ecosystem around it all for places for real estate prop tech lots of different opportunities we need to embrace that and bring that forward um, to to encourage that change to happen in a positive way um, and then the final point i'll touch on here i think is around we are in a very very interesting time and clearly from an asset class point of view retail has underperformed relative to other asset classes within property and beyond but this presents huge opportunity as well and we're seeing really potential for a bit of a, a gold rush in terms of this asset class over the coming years for the people that get it right so we've got on the market lots of large ex-department stores and units where people really even today do not know what to do with that space. But actually, there are uses of those space. And we can talk a little bit about what we're doing to reimagine and transform those units into what we call micro malls with indoor markets on the ground floor and mixed use schemes upstairs with everything from flexible workspace to residential to hotels and beyond. You know, So there is an opportunity for real estate entrepreneurs and investors to come in and acquire those large assets repurpose them, reimagine them into something that drives great capital appreciation, new rental income, and the opportunity to serve that local community in a way that this old Debenhams, this old Topshop, this old M&S, this old BHS was just sucking the life out of the high street sitting there empty before. Encouraging like a lot of local collaboration and support around this is another dimension on that specific opportunity. So something like that is good for the local area. So how do you get the local authority to support? How do you get the local community champions behind it all? How do you get the media behind it? How do you get the whole ecosystem locally to support your vision for reimagining one key asset in a town centre? What a great opportunity. Then I talk about on another side, you know, we touched on high streets being too big. This is not a bad thing. You know, this is ultimately a real thing. And, you know, we may need to have less of certain types of operations on high streets in the future, particularly retail businesses in who are commoditized today and cannot differentiate themselves to online. They cannot provide a niche. They cannot provide a value added services. They fail to do that. Eventually, they will be disrupted and they will have to go. So they have to find a way to give consumers a reason to have that physical space, otherwise it's not going to work. Information services, very similar. Banks is the canonical example. What are you doing with that physical space beyond what you can do for your online banking? Yeah. So there's going to be certain types of high street business which will either have to evolve or die, and there's going to be lots of other new high street business opportunities coming in. But if we take the premise that we have arguably too much retail asset, got half a million units in the UK, give or take at the moment, there is an opportunity. And I understand why people in the, in the property market, you know, are looking at the repurposing into residential as a great opportunity space. But I think there are others as well. And very often, the right way to play this will be to say, not get rid of retail, but reduce the scope of retail within this particular asset, and actually still have some retail frontage on the ground floor, smaller scale, some use there, but actually, how do I make use of the space better beyond that, beyond retail? So I think a huge opportunity for trading and redeveloping high streets, regenerating high streets with a, a lot of support, not just us. But we're a kind of movement mobilizing a lot of this stuff. But, you know, there's a lot of central government money being thrown at regeneration. There's a lot of local government money. We can talk to people if they want to get in touch with me about how you can access this type of support and a lot of wider non-pecuniary support you can get access to as well if you're doing good. And if you're doing good, you know, that doesn't mean that you can't make money as well.
It's, I mean, just peeling back some of the layers there on that. I mean, one of the things that occurs to me is, I mean, you were talking about a, a high street plan. So, you know, to plan out who goes where. And I can, I can relate to that because the project that I did in the south of Spain um, back in 2008, I, I remember I bought one or two units initially. And then I realized, hold on a second, if I open up, you know, a certain type of shop, how do I control who opens up next door to me? How do I know it's not going to be a competing business or something that kind of drags down my, my tenant's business? And so I ended up going and buying the whole lot uh, on the basis that I thought that if you have control over it, you could say, okay, I want to put one, you know, Italian restaurant in rather than three competing and, and two of them, you know, not doing particularly well and one sort of winning and, and cannibalizing the others. And then you want to have perhaps one sushi restaurant and one of this. So to kind of evenly spread it out. Um, the problem is obviously on a high street is that you have so many different stakeholders, so many landlords. So uh, you've got, a, you know, the local authority as well gets involved. I mean, how do you corral all of the different stakeholders to actually get that right? Because it is difficult to tell a landlord, no, you can't do that. This other person is going to do that. You're, you're going to have to do this. Um, do you understand what I'm getting at? Yeah, of course. Fragmented ownership is one of the big, the big sort of uh, sort of structural challenges around this. And when you when you aren't dealing with it, I mean, let's look at some examples. I mean, anyone knows what Marlebone, Marlebone High Street, a lot of it's owned by DeWalden. They own the residential around it all. They're able to invest in Marlebone High Street. If anyone was on Marlebone High Street 25 years ago, they would recognize it being a very, very different place. Yeah. And actually, their long-term strategic investment in the high street offer enabled them, and took a long-term view of it, you know, to substantially increase the residential values around it all, you know, and actually drive you know, substantial opportunities around, you know, risk reward sharing partnerships for the long term as well. So, you know, you can take those positions if you have, you know, the ownership. If you don't have the ownership, it is one of the big challenges. How do we bring people together? I mean, in terms of the how, there are certain things and we haven't cracked everything, but we're working through stuff that ultimately, you know, you need to be able to align incentives. You know, people people aren't doing things out of the goodness of their heart. What I'm saying is you can do good and make money, you know, from a private sector point of view. Mm. But you've got to demonstrate to people that actually this is in your interest, not just that you're some kind of altruistic entity helping a local community because you'll, you'll always have some drop-off. So obviously that principle applies. You've got to always work out what's in it for them. Then you've got to find like local, we call champions. So we've got a program Psychology dog called the local champions program it's about identifying those people who really care about their local area and they could be anything they could be a traders association community group business improvement district busybody you know agent i mean there's all kinds of people who want to be at the hub of everything we all know them in the places we live and ultimately those people who you know are on the ground in those places and really experiencing what it's like for you know uh, their town centre to succeed or not, you know, obviously have a value add there. And there's been a big movement in the whole industry generally, what we call devolution, you know, the power towards the local and empowering those local leaders. Some people like Grimsey will call them local leaders, Bill, uh, and I'll call them local champions. We're all talking about the same thing, really. We just sort of came with the same called group thinking at the same time. And, and you know, I think we, we need to find those people who are going to do the corralling. Yeah, who are actually going to be on the ground. We can play a role within it. The local authority plays a role within it. Uh, but that local champion on the ground has an important role to play. Um, and then, you know, I think, I think the, the, there is opportunity. You know, one of the big opportunities here for those who have the kind of capital to play with is around taking a sort of Gavin type approach in Spain and actually acquiring lots of assets, you know. And if anybody listening into this is looking to do that, drop me a line. You know, we can talk a little bit about you know, some of the things that we're seeing people do in the UK around this larger regen projects, clearly local authority needs to be involved in this at some level. In some cases, the uses I've got are actually local authorities providing a lot of the capital with big property sector interventions in town centres. But from a private sector point of view, if you can get to that point where you're saying, well, actually, there's a lot of distressed asset or even, you know, getting to that point asset, you know, uh, where it could be heavily undervalued in a scenario that we can turn this town centre around, you know, the upside potential for people with 
the ability to access that type of capital on a larger scale, longer term scheme is huge because we're at that point at the moment where fear is driving opportunity. Typical sort of Warren Buffett stuff, I think, you know, it's like <laughs> the market's scared, be greedy, you know, yeah. and actually we do have one of those moments at the, at the moment. So people who are, you know, people who are willing to put, you know, take conviction around, you know, big upside potential, larger regen schemes in the same kind of vein as the way you were thinking here, which is how do I own asset across a high street here and take a longer term view? And ideally, as I said, just not think about it just as retail. You're not just buying retail asset here. You know, you're buying a town center, which is going to have a lot of different uses within it over time, you know. So now is an opportunity for people who can access that type of capital, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I agree with you because I always believed that, you know, the choice that you put in, if you're a, if you're a single landlord with a single unit, you only care about your single unit. But you, if you own a high street, the entire high street, then you take a much more uh, holistic approach and you'll be thinking that, no, no, we don't want to do, we don't want too many of that use. Whereas an individual landlord will just say, yeah, sure, if you want to sign the lease, sign the lease. But the plan of it is important. Um, yeah. Just one thing on that, Gavin, just yeah. since I didn't mention here, just like obviously with the on the ground when it is still fragmented, you know, obviously it's important to kind of reach out to them and, and have a proposition. You know, what we're doing here at, at SaveTheHighStreet.org is we're developing like a toolkit for owners, landlords, so that there's a free level of support. We'll just provide you insight into what's the right use for your your asset here. Um, if you've got a vacant unit, we'll help you fill it with a new tenant and try and try obviously get sustainable uh, occupancy income and obviously the implications of all of that. If you've got an existing tenant, we have a software platform which is being rolled out in the UK with local government funding to support local independent businesses. So if you've got an independent tenant in there, we've got a platform that will help them achieve their potential to get a higher income for themselves, which has a knock-on effect on you, whether or not you're on a turnover linked agreement today or not. And we can also help around that transition towards risk reward sharing, provide insight into what's the risk and potential, particularly of independent tenants, because, you know, covenant strength, what does that mean today? I mean, let's well, be real. It, that's actually, you know. I was going to go there. <laughs> I, I was actually going to say that because there's um, the, the local high street near where I live mm. um, in Black Rock here in Dublin. There are, there's, there's three independently owned cafes and, um, and they are doing incredibly well. If you go down there Ooh. on a Saturday morning, there are queues around the block. And funnily enough, you go across the street and have a look at the, the Starbucks or the Costa or whatever. Those are empty. And so people would rather stand in a, in a line to buy coffee and a, and a scone or something like that from one of the independent ones rather than go to the likes of the Starbucks or the, or the big kind of... Um, and so you, you have to question, because certainly the covenant of a Starbucks or a Costa is usually, I mean, if it's owned by the parent, is going to be far, far better than the independent. But the actual performance of the business and the value to the high street is, is very limited by the looks of it. Yeah, look, expect change. You know, it's not working. It's an old system. You know, we've looked at it in terms of risk from one perspective. And today we're in a different world. Business comes out of street food market with a great social media following and buzz with no covenant strength yeah and then you've got you know large national hundred year old retail chain you know who's throwing around cvas left right and center you know who's riskier who's riskier then you've got to ask yourself the question so fundamental logic will start to play out one of the things like last year i think i mentioned this to you as well when we were in conversation with with Bayes, uh, Department of Business and HCLG last year, one of the big things I was saying is we need to really start to look at this. We need to bring the banks to the table, the valuers to the table, and we need to start to really look at the systemic challenges between tripartite relationships between landlord, tenant, and lender generally, but even specifically, how do we value? You know, and let's get yeah. real here. Let's start, let's start to say, oh, this is what we used to do, and this is how we do it, but let's start to build some more fundamental. And it's part of our mission, I think part of our, our business opportunity around this is we're collecting a lot of intelligence around this with the SME sector, getting to a point where we can kind of evaluate a business before they go into a space and ongoing. And I think, you know, if we've got a world where there's more independence, we're going to need to do this in new ways. And so, you know, we want to make sure that our, you know, that this kind of intelligence exists in the ecosystem and that we can play a role within it.
you're obviously at the you know at the coal phase here in terms of the high street and stuff. Like, what is exciting you at the moment? Looking into the trends that are taking place, is there any? I mean, just speaking from my own experience, I've seen ghost kitchens and uh, and micro mobility mm. and mm. you know micro mm. warehousing. All of that kind of stuff is starting to creep in. Is there anything that you've seen that is particularly exciting as far as you're concerned? Yeah, I mean, there's a few things. I mean, I touched on the micro more before, but I'll just reinforce that. So, you know, larger units, you know, we're not going to replace Debenhams with House of Fraser. What do we do with those spaces? And actually, uh, there are pilots that we're uh, involved in managing. And there are other examples you may have seen yourself in different parts of the UK, where the ground floor becomes an indoor market, where the ground floor basically space is cut up into lots of smaller units and it houses ideally we're involved a curated set of independents that have the space and support they need to succeed and ultimately you select you get these businesses to apply for the space you get them on rolling license agreements linked to turnover you get the right mix of businesses if it's not working for either party you can swap them out and bring them in and you start really curating that offer on the ground floor turn them into vibrant indoor markets and sometimes they're big and there's a big town center and there's a need for a full mixed-use space sometimes they're very small and it's maybe just a food market or even in some cases certain verticals you might have a little fashion space there's a gap in the market for but it's lots of small operators on the ground floor and then the uppers you turn into whatever the gap in the market is is it a hotel is it resi is it other commercial uses uh, you know one of our pilots in peckham going to check out marketplaces uh, flexible workspace you know, upstairs there. I think you that's know, a like, big one. All right. Yeah. Oh, think, such a great it's opportunity. Be, it's funny you say that because there's an example here in Dublin um, of this center that they created. It's a like a retail center, but when it, it opened right at the height of the of the recession here in Ireland, um, it's called CHQ. And when it opened, there was almost every single unit. I mean, it has maybe say forty or fifty units. Every single unit was was closed. And uh, just they couldn't find anyone to kind of go in because nobody wants to be the first pioneer that kind of steps in because why would you go in for just the one shop? So they ended up doing a deal with a, a company called Dogpatch Labs, which is kind of a co-working place. And um, those guys did so well because they were right in the middle of the Docklands, perfect location. And they've ended up expanding two, two or three times further and further into the space. But what it's created is this community of, you know, startup founders and stuff and, and their staff. And, and what's happened is all of the food and beverage, you know, units that are needed for lunchtime and all that have started to spring up around it. So it's amazing what a catalyst can do because that is now a vibrant space, whereas you couldn't find anyone to go into it for quite a while. So it is 100%. interesting. Yeah, hundred percent, Gavin. And I think like you've got you've got these schemes, these larger schemes here, and as I touched on it before, where there's a lot of people who are vested interest in seeing something like that succeed. You know, from our point of view, we're we're sort of collaborative with everybody. We've always been a bit like this. It's part of our philosophy. The whole idea of a movement is all about bringing people together and partnering. We don't really see competition in that same way. We're we're very collaborative, and and this is a great example of that. Where you know whether it's working directly with a landlord and just making the whole ground floor work, or working with an operator that's taking a head lease and wants to sublet it out to other tenants will do that whether it's a developer promoter who wants to do this in lots of different areas around the uk will collaborate with you around that like, there's lots of different ways of collaboration around this and i think those those types of schemes you know really get me quite excited when people get in touch with us about that because i know like, there's a lot of different angles of ways that we can kind of plug gaps to make them a reality and i truly believe that versions of that can exist in almost every town center and actually if you go back to the other point here you've got one of those in the middle of the town center you're providing a whole range of different interesting offerings in a way it creates the opportunity to repurpose more of the outside into other resi because you've actually got a lot of the core offering more than you were offering previously in the whole of your house of fraser is now being offered on the ground floor alone so, yeah, you know, yeah. you've got some really interesting kind of opportunities out of that. And the other one, I think the big one for me is that sort of relates a little bit because some of our recruitment for these these things is around startups, but is startups. And I think, you know, when I talk about startups, I'm talking about it as a startup on the high street. So actually, one of the most high profile startups on the high street last few years has been Amazon. You know, and Amazon is actually 
Uh, and I was saying this years ago, you know, that, you know, look at the big online people, you know, you think they're disrupting the high street, they're going to be on the high street. You know, these people, their big frontier is about how they get to omnichannel, how they connect yeah. the dots between online and offline in different ways. And they're all doing it. Alibaba in China, eBay partnering with Argos, Amazon was testing concept stores, you know, long before they opened up in West London this year. You know, it's like there was a lot, there's a lot, there was a lot of energy from the biggest online retailers in the world, even the, the smaller niche players, Bonobos, you know, like, you know, ASOS were doing pop-up strategies to get into the physical world. Like they were all looking at this. So I'm not sure I started in the broadest sense from the person in a bedroom with an idea to the person in a bedroom selling through Etsy to the person on the street food market to the large online catalog retailers who want to come offline. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're looking to support a whole new generation. I mean, I've got one of the largest catalog online retailers in the world uh, with an ambition to, you know, set up a really interesting pop-up strategy to be on various different high streets we've identified as opportunities with really interesting concept operation of op, um, uh, offerings in those high streets that kind of merge product service and experience for their target market and join the dots between actually getting more people signed up to their uh, database and on their catalog and buying online online to offline commerce local fulfillment points for them so like ambitious stories like that all the way through to you know, running a campaign with a local authority to basically identify who's got these types of offerings because there's gaps in the market in this particular area. Leytonstone has a gap in the market for this. Do you want to offer this? We'll find you the space and support to help you succeed. And we've been running some pilots with uh, shopping center owners around this, where we basically get rent-free space between four and 12 weeks. We recruit the right business into that space to best meet the needs of that local offering. And actually, as you can imagine with the shopping center, fill the gaps and provide a better overall proposition for anyone coming to the center. But in that four to 12 weeks, we're supporting that business to be as successful as possible on our, on our technology platform, Joe, which has got the support and tracking involved in the whole thing. And in that period, we're effectively understanding what is a sustainable long-term agreement between landlord and tenant for this particular uh, unit and this particular business. And can we help sort of broker it in that sense there? And if not, the tenant can leave and we swap them out to someone else until we find that business who's right to go into long-term occupancy. We basically turn vacant units into incubator spaces for new high street offerings to mm. test them out and give them the support they need to basically get off up and running. So I'm really bullish about like a whole new generation coming in and I'm recognizing that, you know, the, the, the death of the high street from one perspective is the death of the old, you know, and I think we need to be really positive around change and recognize that COVID-19 is a massive accelerator for change. There's nothing anyone can do to stop innovation generally. And it's being sped up by the big market forces and a pandemic that's hit us all in the last year. Mm. And actually, we've got to see the positives in all of this, which is a whole new generation comes in to a market that was really not performing. And now we've got an opportunity to get the right businesses in the right places doing the right things. I have a question around car parking because um, I have an experience in, uh, in car parking. We, we built a, a car park building back in the uh, mid 90s. And when we opened it, it was it did incredibly well. It was um, it was always packed. It was always like lines of cars trying to get into our place. And so for for a number of years, we did extremely well. But then the the local authorities started to try to push cars out of the city centre. They wanted to kind of reduce the the congestion. They wanted to encourage people to take public transport, take bicycles, all of this kind of stuff. And it got to the point where um, a couple, you know, I suppose four or five years ago now at this stage, we actually sold the business and, and we managed to get out um, quite well because a, a big developer saw it as a, as a land acquisition strategy and they were, you know, assembling a bigger site. Um, but what's interesting about it is that now that COVID has happened, they've completely turned away from the original idea. They were going to turn the, they were going to knock the building down and turn it into uh, an office building with some retail on the ground floor. And now they've actually gone back and they're looking at turning it into a, a kind of an outdoor restaurant and using the actual floors of the car park as a, as a kind of a, an outdoor. So it's very interesting to see the engineering yeah. coming back. But um, I mean, just going back to the original point, car parking in city centers and town centers and, and high streets 
it does seem to be, you know, the the enemy of the local authority, and they do seem to be trying to drive people away. But is that not essential for a high street to thrive? Because, you know, certain types of stores, you're not going to go home on a bicycle with a with a ton of stuff that you've spent the day shopping for. Um, so you do need cars. It's kind of like a partnership in a sense. What's your view on that? I mean, it's it's interesting. It's a very sensitive topic. It always was. I remember when I used to do a lot of stuff on radio. You used to get the call in, you know, to talk radio. I want to talk about this. We've got people, you know, calling in. One of the first things that was always said, it's like, what about parking? How are you going to fix parking? And, you know, one of the things I always thought thought was like, look, it's, it's one dimension of this, but there's a lot of challenges going on around high street. Parking is just one of those, you know, and, and a lot of times it was a very emotional thing, a sensitive thing for people. You know, there's 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 a strategy that's sort of emerged, and it's not something we've led or been really involved in here. But you know, strategies emerged to say, well, actually, you know, there's going to be less cars. You know, we're going to move into a world where people aren't going to own cars. You know, and they're going to shift from renting cars into self-driving cars. You know, we want sustainable local environments you know so we need less cars anyway so it ticks on that esg box too you know so we shouldn't be making long-term investments in cars and and you know sometimes people jump to that conclusion and it, and look it can work i mean i said you know we're, we're you know we're deep in partnership with local authorities like wolf and forest and richmond that are really big on this kind of stuff you know and, and others that aren't but you know but at the same time you know I what do I what do I what do I fundamentally feel? I mean, when you look at the data, you know there are some areas more so than others where uh, accessibility from a, a car uh, you know from a car point of view generally has a bigger impact than others and needs to be addressed. And I just wish we'd be a bit more analytical with it. I wish you know every area was analysed in the same in the same way, and we'd actually say, you know what, this actually is harming us more so and we need to address it whereas another area is saying well actually this isn't harming us as much and we can take a more bespoke approach rather than being a sort of one size fits all and on one size of the fence or the other for me it's almost like what's best for each high street and you know we need to be a bit tailored with that based on the data mm, yeah and you mentioned uh, the high street might have to get become a smaller high street um, mm. those units so on the the outer extremities what's going to happen with them you think they'll be turned into residential or what's your view? Is that the way, that, that the direction that we're going? Well, it's different for different areas, you know, and I think there's, um, uh, people have got a different thesis about where things are going post COVID, you know, I think there are, you know, there are a lot of investment opportunities in high street. You know, we've been talking about more dynamic planning systems and this is coming into play right now. I mean, people are sort of close to this around, you know, PD rights is one of the reasons why a lot of people, you know, in the real estate sector are very excited about the opportunity of conversion. Uh, but, you know, I think there was, you know, really an increasing amount of buy-in, particularly accelerated by COVID again, from local authorities at the top, feeding down into planning teams, that change needs to come. And we need to support positive change in a lot of areas. Yes, residential, when there's a shortage of housing, you know, in other areas, you know, my view, you know, from a flexible office space point of view, I think suburbia needs mini WeWorks and mini flexible mm, workspaces sure. because less people are going to commute than before, even if people are coming back. And I agree with you, people will come back, but not in the same numbers, not five days a week, everyone. And as a result, people are not going to want to work at home, are going to want to work, but they're going to want to work nearby. It's a big opportunity there. I talked a little bit earlier about you know, warehousing and logistics spaces. It's been a hot market for a while, but I think last mile logistics presents opportunities. Uh, you talked about dark kitchens as well. So less front-facing operations, but more, you know, behind the scenes serving local demand. You know, so I think there's there are basically a lot of different uses, and I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all. And then some people are like, oh, I'm a retail-to-resi developer. And so it's great. We'll find your opportunities. No, we, we can partner with you around it as well. Some high streets we're in, you know, we'll help you find, you know, which of those high streets where we believe this is going to be a great opportunity and part of our sort of landlord toolkit as i was saying before you know is like, look, if you've got a vacant unit and we believe there's an opportunity for another uh, tenant in there we'll help you find that tenant and we'll help you fill it and make them successful if you've got a vacant unit and we don't believe this should be high street we'll tell you you know and we've got people coming to us who want to sort of help help those uh, those landlords that we work with repurpose their units or trade those units to to other investors and developers who want to do something 
with it within sort of the the, the wider remit of the high street plan we're putting in mm. you know so I think I think there is uh, I think there's going to be different uses. I think it's a great opportunity whether you're you're sitting on the asset today or you're looking in from the outside, even greater right now, opportunistically saying, "Do you know what? You know, I'm willing to I'm willing to go in there and do the right thing for different high streets. I've got a strategy here, so I'm going to target the high streets around the edges where resi is an opportunity, or I'm going to target the high streets where other commercial uses are the opportunity, and really make that happen. And you know. I'm really keen, and you know this, you know, I'm really keen to connect with more of these investor developer types in the community who are actually saying, do you know what? I'm embracing change and I see huge opportunity in change and I want to be close to this because, you know, as an organization, we haven't on our own got the capital to be able to reimagine, rebuild the high street. But actually, with the right sources of capital, the right, you know, individuals, organizations, together we can do some really special things in terms of the physical, real built world environment and the transformation of it. And in a lot of cases, it is going to be changing use. And in terms of the um, the timescale, I mean, clearly you have a mission there uh, that's going to take some time to implement. What kind of time frame are you looking at in terms of, you know, bringing all of these different stakeholders together and, and trying to kind of restructure the way we look at the, the traditional high street? Um, it's a good question, Gavin. I mean, you know, just going back, I mean, we launched 2016, you know, really... The, the sort of early days, we didn't really know 100% sure how it was going to unfold. We were already building some technology in this market, you know, to empower the businesses. We already had some good partnerships around that. And uh, when we launched the movement, it sort of blew up. We were in the Sunday Times and the Times and the Mail and the Sunday Mail in the first two days over the weekend. You know, it just went, went completely ballistic. And we were we were very high profile from a, from, a, from a traditional media point of view quite quickly. And then JC Deco got behind us and put loads of ads all around the country about Save the High Street, which is, again, put us on on another level. Okay, you know, yeah, so yeah. we spent the first year really sort of building out the movement in terms of like, people coming together, doing a lot of research. We set up this High Street Advisory Board that was funded by sort of private sector. Um, and then we went on our sort of journey around saying, well, where are the big problems here? One of the most important things, we've got this sort of distribution and this brand and we sort of connected with something here and we've got research and insight into the market. You know, what are we hearing as the most important things to work on? And I think ultimately for me and, you know, just intimately on my business, and you know, I'm a very open person around this side of things, you know, a lot of where we're prioritizing is saying, well, look, we've got, you know, give or take half a million, 500,000 high street units in the UK. You know, we need to have a solution for every single one of those units. So if it's an occupied unit, we now have the most advanced uh, digital support platform for small businesses in the UK that we've been building out since 2017. And it's a digital assistant. It's uses an AI assistant, if you like, you know, that learns about your business, gives you ideas and helps you put those ideas in place. It's like having a team without all the humans involved. And now we've got local authorities rolling that out for their local businesses in different parts of the UK. So making sure that every single local small business has Joe, which is the support platform, is a big priority for us. But then we've got the vacant units and there's an increasing number of these vacant units in the UK. And we want to make sure that all those vacant units are either filled with a new business on the platform and supported to be successful, or they're repurposed into other uses, in which case, as we talk about all these other opportunities economically around that as well. And then you've got the bigger units, which is really around you know, the, all the micro and all stuff we were talking about. Former earlier, Debenhams big, and stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then we, we've got this we've got this sort of side remit, which is really important to us because it's kind of in our DNA, but it's also just important for us. It is even important commercially where we're basically supporting what we call the local champion communities. So we're really at the grassroots here. We partner with people on the ground in their high streets to make change happen. And they provide us a voice on the ground. They're part of our team and we're part of their team. And often it's a volunteer relationship both ways. Sometimes local authorities are funding us to set these up, set up a traders group, set up these things. But a lot of the time it's just us. us, And they're our friends. I mean, they're literally our friends, these, these busy bodies on the high street, because we all talk the same language in my team yeah. and their team. And they're, they're like a, we're like a small team, but we're a really big team because we have this local champion community and people on the ground. So we want to continue building that out. We want to partner with every local authority, every LEP, every bid, every local community champion. We really, and a, a big focus of ours, and I know I was talking to you and getting some guidance from you, we really want to partner with really ambitious, forward-thinking developers who see positive change going on here and opportunities to start to really transform the physicality of these spaces, whether it's a micro, more distinct opportunity or whether it is about saying that we can actually help acquire 
and repurpose these units together in interesting ways, um, or whether it is a larger scale regeneration project where you're saying, actually, I think there are going to be town centres around the UK that are undervalued, fundamentally undervalued. But if we did took a long term approach with it and we got access to the right kind of capital, we can do some really interesting things together. And for us, our approach here and our role here is we basically go from the ground up. You know, we get all the local champion support, local authorities, support, all of that good stuff. But we actually look at every single one of those units in the same way I was talking about before. How do we make the tenanted occupied units work? How do we fill the vacant units? How do we reimagine the bigger ones? You know, so for us, reinventing and reviving the high street from our role point of view is done from the ground up. And we're just plowing on, you know, unit by unit. Every single new unit we add is another thing to is another part of changing the high street. Um, Alex, I wanted to just ask a question I ask all of my guests is uh, what advice would you give to your younger self? That's that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I was given some great advice once uh, that really sort of stuck with me um, about decisions. Um, One of my early um, angel investors into our business, um, who built and scaled and sold a successful business. So one thing he said to me that always stuck, and it still sticks today in my day-to-day, is there are decisions you can't go back on and there are decisions you can go back on. So as a CEO, always look at those decisions in that light, yeah? And if it's a decision you can go back on, move quickly. And if it's a decision you can't go back on, be purposeful and take your time on it. And so I think that's really helped because I think a lot of times I I look at um, small startup businesses and you say, well, why are they going to succeed against the big guys? Well, it's because they move quickly. It's because they make quick decisions about the things where they can move back on. um, And the mistakes that they can't go back on, um, they're more purposeful with. So whenever I'm addressing something, I always think, is that a decision I can go back on or not? And that, that kind of helps me helps me go through here um i think that's a that's a that's a that's a big one for me that's a good one i think yeah <laughs> all right alex um we're we've been about an hour um how can people find you if they want to mm. reach out and connect with you on some of these some of these topics yeah well i mean alex schlagman on on linkedin um s-c-h-l-a-g-m-a-n i put a link in the notes yeah yeah exactly and then and then my email is alex at save the high street.org feel free to drop me a line anytime uh save the high street.org is the website for the movement um there's a there's another sort of website for the platform which is uh joinjoe.com uh but yeah look if you're seeing any opportunity around the transformation of the high streets from any side yeah, do drop me a line, you know, happy to explore if there is something that we might be able to do together, you know, and ultimately, you know, be a part of not just the positive ESG type change, but be part, part of the positive commercial opportunities that are going on over the coming years. Great stuff. Thanks so much, Alex. Thank you. Guys, I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Alex. It's uh, certainly an uphill battle, but I do think he has certainly got the passion for dealing with um, all of the struggles that lie ahead. And I do think that there is going to be a lot of people out there who spot the opportunity. And like he said, uh, the old Warren Buffett saying to get greedy when everyone else is fearful, it would seem like there is an awful lot of people walking away from retail right now. So it may well be the perfect time to go and jump back in. So anyway, guys, that is it for episode number 64 of Behind the Facade. Thank you so much for listening. As always, my number one ask is for you to leave a review or simply share the episode out with somebody you think would benefit from it. In the show notes today, you'll find links to the various things discussed. We'll be talk- I'll drop in Alex's LinkedIn profile and his email that he gave a short time ago, along with Uh, link to savethehighstreet.org and to his other website, joinjoe.com. If you have any questions or topics you would like me to cover in future episodes, please connect with me via the Facebook group Behind the Facade Community. Alternatively, you will always find me on social media using the handle Gavin J. Gallagher, and that includes my YouTube channel, which you're probably getting sick and tired of listening to me plug every week. Anyway, lastly, guys, um, you can stay up to date with the various events and challenges and the masterclass that is or mastermind that is going to be coming out soon. You'll find details for all of that on my website. So why not pop over and add your email to the uh, email list? Uh, You can get that at Gavin 
jgallagher.com forward slash go. All right, folks, I hope to see you all again next week. Mm-hmm.